I think now I'm going to invite Lance, who is going to be baptised shortly, uh, to come and tell us a little bit about his story and what it is that has brought him to uh, this waters of baptism today. So Lance, can I invite you to come up? Thank you, Simon. Good morning, everyone. Um, Lance, um, just to start by saying that I'm very grateful for the opportunity to acknowledge my faith publicly here in such a welcoming and supportive community at Bloomsbury. A little bit about myself. I'm here today with my partner, Daniel, um, and I work in global trade strategy at the Bank of England. I was brought up in a relatively strict Plymouth Brethren Church in Turks and Caicos Islands. My grandparents and my mother were regular attendants who had a huge influence on my Christian faith and I gladly accepted Christ as my savior in my early teens. I've had a bit of a nomadic lifestyle um, from my mid-teens onwards until I settled in London for the second time in the early noughties. So this is after spending a bit of time at college in Wales, working for a few years in Norway, as well as a short time in, in Brussels. But the real challenge came at university in Leeds in the mid nineties, um, where I struggled a bit to square my personal Christian faith with my sense of belonging to the LGBT community. This inner conflict was at times quite troubling and it really affected the link that I had to the, to the church. It also made me quite suspicious of some religious teachings for quite a while. Eventually I was able to rebuild a direct link to God along with a new approach to life realizing that it was actually okay to follow my conscience. Since then, I've been worshiping in a low key way, trying to avoid attracting the judgment of others. But the pandemic has made me rethink the stuff that matter most in my life. And this is where I felt the need to get baptized so that my relationship with God and with the wider church would again take the rightful place in my life. So um, taking this step comes after quite a bit of reflection, especially on the question of whether I'd be able to live a life that's worthy of baptism. I've gained, I've given, sorry, a lot of thought to whether I would need to cleanse myself first um, before I could let Jesus in properly. A huge thanks to Simon um, for your support on the Zoom calls um, during this process. I also take great comfort in, uh, from the message in Martin's sermon, last week, that baptism is not intended to transform you magically into a perfect being. So I'm encouraged by the message that if I acknowledge the presence of Jesus in my doubts, in my anxieties, prejudices, even in my hypocrisy, I can still find the God of compassion and justice in me, bringing that sense of hope and strength. So I'm not entering this commitment lightly or as a sign of my own righteousness, but I'm doing so with faith in God. And I just request that you continue to lift me up in your prayers, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Lance. That was wonderful, just wonderful. Lance, it is a great joy to be here with you today in this way. Friends, today we rejoice in the work of God in the life of Lance who is to be baptized. He is here because Jesus Christ has found him and through the work of the Holy Spirit, he has discovered new life in Christ. The love of God has become real. The call of Christ has beckoned him 
and the life of the Spirit has renewed him. So, Lance, some promises for you to make. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I do. This is the God in whom I trust. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? I do. He has redeemed me and called me by name. Do you turn from sin, renounce evil, and intend to follow Christ? I do. Christ is my way. He is the truth, and now he is my life. Will you live within the fellowship of the church, and will you serve Jesus Christ in the world? With the Spirit's help, this will be my witness. Lance, you are called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we now baptise you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, pour your Holy Spirit upon us. May he know the peace that comes from you, the joy that you give, and the fullness of life that he discovers by following you for the rest of his days. Amen. I'm reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. I'm reading from Psalm 51, verses 1 to 17. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. 
Thank you, Ruth. And now Simon is going to bring us the sermon. I love baptismal Sundays. I just absolutely love them. I'm one of the trustees of uh, an organization called the Christian Inquiry Agency. Uh, it runs a website, uh, www.christianity.org.uk. I commend it to you. And one of the features of this website, in addition to a large selection of excellent articles introducing people to different aspects of the Christian faith, is that we offer an opportunity for people to send in their prayer requests. And those of us who are trustees get these prayer requests through in real time. Three or four a day arrive in my email inbox. And then they are distributed more widely in an anonymized form in a monthly prayer email to a group of people who have committed to hold in prayer, those who request it. It is, I have to say, proving to be a fascinating insight into people's prayer lives. Because people often type their request in the form of the prayer that they want to articulate to God. And really, up until this point, I kind of only knew what my prayer life looked like. So it's been very interesting to have these snapshots into other people's lives. They can be raw, profound, moving and heartfelt. I would say that most of the prayers fall into the category that we might call intercession. People asking God for something for themselves or for someone they love. So there are a lot of prayers about financial stresses, relationship difficulties and medical problems. Much more rarely, there are prayers of what we might call confession. And almost always, these are related to sexual ethics, as people confess their sexual sins to God, seeking forgiveness. Which makes me kind of wonder what people think sin, confession and forgiveness are really about. Is it only about lust, infidelity and the actions that arise from these? Well, today, as we come to the latest instalment in our summer series, looking at some of the Psalms, which is harder to say than you might think, we find ourselves at possibly the most famous prayer of confession ever uttered. The normal heading for this Psalm uh, in, in your Bibles, and we deliberately didn't have it read out today, um, because it, it is almost certainly a later edition. But the normal heading to this Psalm ascribes the psalm to King David, and it puts it as his prayer of confession for his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. Uh, and he, uh, he, in the tradition, he utters this prayer after he has been confronted by the prophet Nathan uh, with what he has done. Well, whether or not this is truly the origin of Psalm 51, it certainly works in this context. And it, it locates the psalm in this world of lust, infidelity, and the actions including murder that arise from them. What is interesting, I think, is how the psalm develops from this starting point as it works its way through the theological themes of confession and repentance and forgiveness. 
So as we come now to look at this famous psalm, I want to pose a couple of questions for us to consider as we go through. What is a prayer of confession? And what do we think we're doing when we pray one? So to Psalm 51. The first couple of verses set in place the themes and vocabulary of confession that the rest of the psalm then explores in more detail. So let's hear them again now. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. These are great words to hear at a baptism, aren't they? There's an interest in interweaving in these two verses of, on the one hand, human action, and on the other hand, God's action. An interplay between what we might call our cultic deeds and the divine response of covenant. One of the cultic deeds of our Baptist faith is the act of baptism. It's a ritual that we do, a symbol and a sign, a bit like the sharing of bread and wine that we do at communion. And in moments of cultic action, such as baptism or communion, we dare to believe that God is also active. This is what makes bread and wine and water into sacramental elements at the heart of our faith. So as Lance went down into the waters of the baptismal pool, we believe that it wasn't just Martin and I in the pool with him. We believe that God also met him in those waters, according to God's faithful promise. In the act of baptism, as in the opening verses of this psalm, human need is laid bare. In baptism, we publicly express our longing for our transgressions to be blotted out, for our iniquity to be washed away, and for our sins to be cleansed. And in return, God extends mercy. God reaches out to us in steadfast love. And so we see both the human need for forgiveness and the divine response of forgiveness intertwined in the opening verses of this psalm and in the act of baptism, we see cultic action and covenantal promise interwoven. And in this interplay between our action and God's action, what we discover is that forgiveness is always God's action. Forgiveness is always God's initiative. But we also discover that the forgiveness God offers in turn always affects our own actions as we then respond in turn to what God has done. God's action and our response are not mutually exclusive, rather they are inextricably intertwined as we enact in our lives the forgiveness that God offers, as God's forgiveness becomes transformative of our lives. Lance spoke movingly earlier of wondering whether he was not good enough for baptism. And as Martin reminded us in the sermon last week, none of us ever are. We all always stand in need of forgiveness. 
Never more so than at the moment of baptism, but never less so either. And so Psalm 51 continues with its words of confession, verses three and four. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. The insight of these couple of verses is to do with the nature of sin. And I think it's something we need to hear and hear clearly. Sin, according to Psalm 51, is a violation of our relationship with God. Now, it may have a social manifestation. So in David's case, the breaking down of his relationship with God led to adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. But those were not the sin. They were the consequences of sin. Sin, according to this psalm, is always first and foremost a theological problem. It is not about moral, ethical, social or psychological wrongdoing. It may have moral, ethical, social or psychological consequences, but sin is in essence theological. It is a violation of God. It is the fracturing of our relationship with God. So the forgiveness of sin is primarily about the restoration of the sinner's relationship with God, and only secondarily about the restitution of wrongs or the restoration of human relationships. Sin is not the harmful actions we enact against other people. It is always the harm we do against God. And this is because sin is a theological concept, not an ethical one. Now, this isn't to say that we don't do wrong to others. Of course we do. And we are called to seek their forgiveness, just as we are called to offer forgiveness to those who trespass against us. We said the Lord's Prayer earlier. It's clearly in there. But sin is something different. Sin is always and only against God. And this means that forgiveness for sin is God's prerogative alone. Whether or not we are forgiven by those we have wronged is an independent issue to whether or not we are forgiven our sins by God. And this matters, and I think it matters a lot, because many of us live with guilt and shame for much of our lives. We live with the consequences of our actions and indeed of the actions of others towards us. And human brokenness and the fracturing of relationships are not something that it is always within our power to resolve, even if we wanted to, which if we're honest, is not always even the case. But our status before God, as those who are washed, cleansed and eternally loved, is a status that is independent of our other relationship complexities. The forgiveness that we so desperately seek, the forgiveness that blots out our sin and our shame and our guilt is God's alone to give. Which means that no human, no matter how powerful their hold over us, 
has the power to withhold God's forgiveness from us. And then we come to verse five. And we need to spend a moment or two here because it has an unhealthy and unhelpful history of interpretation. St. Augustine, the Christian bishop from the fourth century, developed a doctrine that came to be known as the doctrine of original sin. This is the idea that everyone is born sinful because everyone is born as the result of sexual union and sex itself is inherently sinful. Uh, and this means that everyone has a built-in urge to do bad things and disobey God. So said Augustine. I think it tells us a lot about how Augustine experienced his own sexuality and sexual desires, which he wrote about at length in his book, The Confessions. And superficially, you can see how this ties in with verse five of our psalm. The psalmist says, indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. However, I think we need to avoid overlaying Augustine's wrestling with his own demons onto this ancient Hebrew text. This verse does not state that sex is sinful, and nor does it infer that the writer of this psalm has a corrupt beginning, and nor does it suggest that the writer's mother was morally implicated as a daughter of sinful Eve, all of which are things that the doctrine of original sin might seek to claim. Rather, to get to the heart of this, we need, again, to separate out sin from ethical and moral behaviour. Augustine's sense of sinfulness was inextricably intertwined with sex and sexual behaviour, and as Western Christians, we are the heirs to this way of understanding sin. But what if sinfulness is a theological state rather than an ethical one? If we go back to our definition of sin as a broken relationship with God, then the psalmist's claim to have been born guilty takes on a very different connotation, one which is theological and rather than ethical. The psalmist is realising that there never was a time when he, and I regrettably think we have to assume that this was a he, there was never a time when he experienced himself as fully right with God. This is someone who knows from their own experience of life that their relationship with their creator has always been in need of restoration. Someone who has come to understand that by their best efforts, they cannot and have never been able to ascend to the heights of God's righteousness. And this is a profound insight because it takes us into another theological aspect of sin that of idolatry. When humans try to become like God, they end up constructing God in their own image. And in the end, they simply end up worshiping themselves. None of us, by our own efforts, can ever become righteous. Rather, like this psalmist, we need to realize that instead of making God in our image, we are made in God's image, each of us, gloriously and beautifully made in God's image. And we are therefore created to have a relationship with the God who is beyond us and other to us. The God who draws us inexorably into relationship. The one who alone can declare us righteous, forgiven and restored.
So the psalmist knows that they don't measure up and that they can never do so through their own efforts, not to some human standard of behavior, but against God's righteousness. And so they look to God for help, asking that God will teach them wisdom in their inner heart, that God will give them the gift of discernment that will enable them to make new, truthful, faithful decisions. The writer of this psalm longs to be different, even if they know that the transformation will be a lifelong process. And they know that the impetus for change must come ultimately from God. None of us, by our own strength, can attain righteousness. We all, like the psalmist, stand in perpetual need of the grace of God. And so the psalmist asks, implores God, to purge him, to fill him. He asks that God's face will turn from his sins, that God will blot out his iniquities, that God will create in him a clean heart and give him a new and right spirit. He longs for God to not exclude him, that God will not withdraw the life-giving spirit from him. He wants a restoration of relationship with God, a resurgence of joy, deliverance from evil and strength to meet each new day, to all of which I am sure each of us would also say, Amen, I want that in my life too. Because we too know what this psalmist is discovering, which is that confession and forgiveness is not a once-off event. Those of us who have already been through the waters of baptism ourselves, who have already enacted in our lives the symbolism of washing and purification and resurrection that are so vividly depicted for us there, we know that life goes on and that despite our best efforts, we continue to fail to measure up to the righteousness of God. The baptised stand as much in need of God's mercy and grace as the unbaptised do. The difference is that we, like the psalmist of old, have committed ourselves publicly to this journey of faith. We will keep on trying, even as we continue to stumble along the path of life. The call here is to become people of hope. Counterintuitively, those who are most alert to their failings, to their sinfulness, to their deep alienation from God, are those who have most cause to hope in the active grace of God. As Jesus said, I have not come for those who are well, but for those who are sinners. Those who know they are empty have most hope of being filled. And so this psalm comes towards its conclusion. The writer, despite all the anguish that has gone before, is nonetheless able to turn their voice to praise. Not in their own strength, but as a response to the faithfulness of God. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The very lips which had previously been speaking words of self-abasement and hopeless resignation become the lips that exalt God. Praise is the end result of a process not its beginning. Praise is what emerges once we have encountered God in all God's righteousness and in all our sinfulness. Praise is the product of a restored relationship with the God of righteousness. 
Praise speaks always of God's grace, God's action, God's outreaching into our lives to draw us into the eternal embrace of forgiveness and acceptance. As the great scholar of the Psalms, Walter Brueggemann, puts it, true worship and new living require a yielding of self to begin again on God's terms. And here I think we meet a profound challenge to our practices of worship. If we have reduced confession and repentance to personal, ethical or moral choices, we have missed the whole point that this psalm has brought us to. It is about the restoration of our fractured relationship with God and the relocation of ourselves in right relationship to God. Sin is not what we do. It is who we are before God, and forgiveness is always God's response to our sinful nature. When we realise that righteousness is not something we can achieve by modifying our behaviour or assiduously guarding our thoughts, we come to understand that it is all, always and only of God. Only God can make us clean. Any consequent change in our actions arises from God's prior action in us. When our sins of pride, idolatry and selfishness against God are confessed, then our lives are restored as God forgives us and grants us new life. So when we confess our sins, we are confessing first and foremost the brokenness of our relationship with God and the forgiveness that God always grants us in return is the restoration of our souls to the one who breathed us into being. This psalm takes us beyond any efforts of our own to become righteous and instead invites us into God's righteousness, which is transformative not only of our own lives, but of all people and all creation. And so the world is made new again today, as every day, by the grace of God. Please join me in prayer. Loving God of living water, we come now to pray for ourselves and for your world. In Christ, you meet us in the everyday stuff of our lives. As you once entered the waters of the Jordan on your own baptism, so you continue to immerse yourself in the daily reality of our humanity. As you once met us in the waters of our own baptism, so you are, are joined with us each moment in our need for forgiveness, renewal and transformation. And so we take this opportunity, this day, to reaffirm before you the promises made at our own baptisms. We pray especially for Lance, who has been baptised here today. Together, as your people, we recommit ourselves to the path of faithful discipleship. We seek forgiveness for those times where we have been less than we should have been. And we offer ourselves once again to the task of becoming your people for the salvation of the world. Loving God of living water, we pray for all those who need your cleansing touch. 
We pray for those whose path is in this life, has taken them far from life-giving way of Christ. We pray for those whose courage has failed and whose will has been lacking. We pray for those who have heard your voice, inviting them to join you in the life-giving water, but who have turned away and followed their own path. We pray for our friends and for our families. We pray for those known to us only by their reputation. Lord, draw near to those who draw away from you. Loving God of living water, we pray for a world where death so often gets the last word. We lift before you now those places and people known to us where death seems to have the upper hand and where life seems stifled and suppressed. We pray for those living with illness and especially for those who know that the time remaining on this earth is less than they would have hoped for. Living Lord, draw near to them as they draw nearer to you in death. Through the promises of baptism and resurrection, may we know that life is more than death and that your love endures through and beyond the tomb. We pray also for those situations around the world where death and disaster overtake a population. We pray especially today for those countries most at risk from the destabilizing effects of climate change and for those who live with war, particularly the people of Afghanistan. We name before you now those other places and people known to us where death seems victorious. Living Lord of resurrection promise, may streams of life-giving water come to the deserts of destruction. May justice flow like rivers and righteousness like a never failing stream. We also commit to your loving care, all those whose faithful commitment to their baptismal promises has led them to persecution and death. We lift before you now those situations around the world where Christians are targeted for no other reason than their unyielding identification with the God of love made known in Christ Jesus. May new life come to many through their faithful witness. Loving God of living water, we thank you that you step down into the midst of the mess of this world and into the complexities of our own lives. We thank you that in baptism you draw near to us and invite us to draw near to you. We thank you that you do not leave the world unchanged and that you are daily at work inviting transformation and bringing hope and new life. In Jesus' name, Amen. And let's bless each other by saying the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.